Hello and welcome to episode six of another architecture podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And this podcast is for anyone who is interested in going behind the scenes of designing a house. I talk to architects from around the world about how they create inspirational places to live. In this episode, I talk to the architect Tom Raymond, who is a co-founder of London-based studio Arboreal Architecture, a company that describes itself as an ecological practice. We talk about their award-winning reuse flat project in London, which is a transformation of an existing apartment and was designed with the aim of resulting in zero waste. Construction is wasteful. As an example, the construction industry in the UK contributes a staggering 60% of the UK's total waste. With reuse flat, Arboreal have demonstrated a different way of doing things. The existing wood floor has been used for wall panelling, rubble has been used for garden walls and recycled jeans from France have been used for the insulation. What I like about the project is that it demonstrates creative and common sense ways to reduce the waste coming out of the construction site with certain aspects that can easily become mainstream. I hope you enjoy listening to the episode. Tom, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to start with a quote from your website, because I think it's a really good um, quote, and I'd like to sort of find out a bit more about it but you've said um, as architects it's not about choosing the right coffee cup it's about radically transforming the way we specify materials and design for their assembly and disassembly I'd be really interested just to hear a little bit more about what you you mean by that because I think it's a really good analogy using the coffee cup hmm yeah thank you I think it's um it's a, a quote that points to the the different values that we places on things and different priorities and I think in any in any kind of attempt at living a, a green lifestyle we we're we're kind of surrounded by different messages about what we should be doing or not doing what we should be paying attention to or not paying attention to and I suppose coffee cups was one thing that at certain times has been in the media as an issue and and so we see people with their very nice non-disposable uh, cups that they bring around with them, which is which is great. Um, but as an architect, of course, what we we may drink coffee, we may we may use disposable or or uh, non-disposable cups, but our impact in the buildings that we design and the materials that we specify is is much greater. And so, in a way, the simple message is is yes do what we can personally but let's look at what our professional impacts are on waste and carbon and energy and so on because not really surprisingly they're many times bigger 10 10 20 times bigger uh, depending on what projects you might be working on but but really many times bigger than our personal impact and they need that kind of attention and that's kind of in relation to and you've spoken before about how um well it's a well-known it's a well-known fact that what well, it's about sixty percent of um, waste in the UK comes from construction work, which mm. is a huge, huge sum compared to maybe something that's more frontline, like household waste and our mm. everyday kind of recycling. Um, so you think you know architects have a there's quite a lot of power or quite a lot of influence with that big um, chunk of waste. We do have a big a big amount of influence, and in a way that's you know something to get excited and motivated by because 
changes in that area can have a really big impact. So yeah, about I think just less than 60% of, of materials that go to waste come from the construction industry in the UK. And I think it's something around 17 is the domestic waste. So again, yeah, you can see we're talking about several factors um, of significance. And I guess generally it's a, it's a time when architects, uh, construction industry and anyone involved in, in building things is becoming more aware of the, the scale of our impact. Uh, and perhaps more recently, uh, the carbon carbon impacts that uh, something like forty percent of global CO two is related to construction. Um, around thirty percent of that is uh, uh, um, operational uses, the energy that we use, and we're seeing a transformation from no longer using gas to heat our homes and moving on to renewable material renewable energies. Um, and we're also seeing an increase in awareness and understanding about embodied carbon, the, the other 10% of that 40 uh, in the buildings that we specify. And perhaps we'll get onto it later, but, but uh, C- CO2 uh, issues are also related to, to waste. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's, that's always been important to you. Is it something that's, that was a shared vision with you and um, the uh, Harry Patikas, your co-founder of Arboreal Architects. Did you both, was that the sort of stimulus for starting the company? Was this something that you both shared as a vision? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, we'd worked in different practices prior. I'd worked in the States and Harry in London for seven or eight years before we set up our own company together. And yeah, we, we, we loved everything that was happening in the, uh, the focus on design that architects were um, pursuing, but we felt that the sustainability agenda was still marginal. And uh, over the last 10 years that we've had our practice, I think that has certainly increased, um, but yeah, still a long way to go in terms of having the kind of impacts that the planet really needs. And from like from a, uh, a business point of view, um, there must be an advantage as in you're probably quite ahead of the curve in the sense that this is not something that you've kind of added on to your business and you're changing the way you're thinking. You've, you fundamentally started with a belief. I mean, you named your company Arboreal yeah. inspired by the tree. Yeah. Um, this is a fundamental belief. Have you found that that's been a benefit that you, do you think that you were slightly ahead of the curve? I think it has been helpful to have a clear agenda, uh, clear aims and, uh, and working practices. Uh, so I think that draws has drawn to us clients that share those kinds of values, um, and has it been? A, yeah, I think it, it it has been a benefit. But equally, there's also been times when the clients that come to us and the projects that we have that we have to also put a bit of a of energy and a bit give a bit of a push to to help to to see those aims uh, delivered because they also come with cost and complexity and other challenges. But yeah, the name Arboreal is very much, uh, we, we set it with that clear idea in mind um, that we love trees um, and perhaps also that, that we see sustainability is not just the technical realm. Um, a, a tree is a good example of that. You know, you can look at a tree with a, a scientist's uh, mind and see its incredible technical performance, the way it captures sunlight and moves water around. But you can also look at it with a with a, a, a poet's mind and see its its beauty and character and qualities. And hopefully, that 
is what we also managed to bring to, to our architecture. And you mentioned about um, clients and when they come to you, they've, they're often, they do have a sort of preconceived idea that they want to be doing something that's sustainable, let's say, with mm. their, their project. Um, but equally, there must be an educational element to it that in terms of convincing, and I'm sure a lot of other architects would probably relate to it, of wanting to do certain things, but actually finding the, actually implementing them being the challenging part. Uh, we've definitely found as a practice, it's it's been all about knowledge. The more we know um, before suggesting an idea, the more we can then convince them with maybe kind of more relatable facts, like this will be the long-term benefit. You will save money if you do this, as well as it being the right thing. Um, what's your kind of secret to to being able to do projects such as Reuse Flat, which we'll talk about later, which you really do need a good client on board, or um, or perhaps you just need to sort of strike it lucky. But what's what do you think's your secret to delivering and actually implementing some of these really good ideas it's it's a sensitive and kind of personal business because it comes down to how you form a relationship with the client and how you understand them and they understand you and you know you're undertaking this shared project together that can last for a year or more and it comes down to what kind of where do you find common ground i suppose and yeah i think you're you're absolutely right that being able to um, provide the necessary information to help them to understand the kind of choices that you're encouraging them to make is is vital i don't know if i would call it educational perhaps that goes a little bit too far because it, it is a, it, it's a sensitive balance between you know we we don't tell clients this is what we're going to build for you and this is what we're going to design Mm -hmm. for you it has to be uh, a joint endeavor um and so i think the kind of there's probably aren't any secrets other than kind of good uh, ability to listen to talk to clients and form form a kind of effective team together um but other than that i would say casting the net quite widely in terms of what are the potential uh, sustainable design strategies that you might pursue, casting it widely widely enough so that you can find what catches their attention, what works for them, what inspires them. Um, yeah, and sometimes that can be surprising. Sometimes that not, that's not even necessarily known at the start of a project, but that comes up in the design process. And, and once you hit on that, uh, allows you to take it much further. And what was that like then in terms of in relation to the reuse flat project? Was that something that started at the outset with that idea and the client coming to you or did it did it gradually evolve into that through a process? Well, it's a, a retrofit of um, a three-bedroom, two-storey flat that was originally built in the early 20th century as part of a school. So it's a, a retrofit project first and foremost, and an improvement of an existing dwelling. And so the initial design impetus was to uh, improve the the dwelling from the point of view of the clients um, where they live there. And from a sustainability point of view, it was about improving the thermal performance of the building, um, its insulation and air tightness and windows. And I think at the beginning, that's where we thought it would go, that actually reuse was not a big 
design driver in the very first meetings. Uh, it was more about improving energy performance uh, of the building fabric. But, and I think if we, yeah, without having the conversation about all the different things we could have done, that the reuse element might never have taken off. But when we talked about materials and waste and design for disassembly, that really struck a chord in the client. And, and I think she could see that that the idea of taking an existing um, property and improving it was was very much what she wanted. But to see that that led to bags and bags of stuff being thrown away was quite uncomfortable. And I think we all we all sense that in different ways that throwing things away uh, is uncomfortable. And you know, it's something that you can see still, it still doesn't work for me, but it could still work for somebody else, or it could be recycled. And and it's it's clearly a way of living that is incompatible with the planet at the moment. There's no waste in the natural world. So, you know, we, we sense that, that waste doesn't make sense. And yeah, we shared that, that, that um, idea strongly with a client and that led us to say, okay, well then how can we eliminate waste from, from your project and let's look for every way we can achieve that. And that led to some really interesting changes to the design and then ultimately the, the success of the project and presumably that was quite early on was that right at the kind of yeah. initial concept stage it was a, yeah in, in the early conceptual design um yeah within the first couple of months of, of working together that we had had those kind of discussions and, and hit upon the sense that that reuse was the was the the big idea that we could really put our attention to was that an idea that you've wanted to implement before um you know why would why was it successful? Why did it actually happen here and get over the line? Mm. Had had you been talking about it before and always wanting to do it and never quite finding that right chemistry and the right fit, or was it a moment of thinking, okay, now we can? This is a great new idea. Well, no, we have we have done it probably in almost all of our projects, but usually it's at the scale of um, uh, a few fittings or a door here or there uh, or some timbers that we managed to, to reuse in the build. Um, and I guess clients have never, ha- haven't previously uh, been so m- kind of moved and motivated by that idea to really take it forward. And, and this one, this one was. Can we just talk uh, um, just a little bit about your background, maybe just before you met Harry and you, and you both set up the company? Um, I think one thing that's interesting is your your upbringing. You you grew up on the um, Fintorn um, Foundation in Scotland, um, which is a kind of eco community. It sounds very sort of different to your typical upbringing, let's say. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that and and how that maybe influenced your your views on architecture? Yeah, certainly. So the Fintorn Foundation is an intentional spiritual community about 300 people who all live together uh, in northeast Scotland and intentional simply means that yeah people who've chosen to live together it looks like a little village but they're not there by accident they've chosen to live there and spiritual in the sense that it was founded uh, in the early 1960s with by a group of people who believed that everyone should have the opportunity to practice their own spiritual beliefs, whatever they are, they're not dogmatic, you don't have to agree to follow anybody else's 
um, beliefs, but that by giving an attention to them that you can bring them more into daily life. Yeah, it's a very interesting place. Um, highly recommend anyone wanting to, to find out more about or visit it. And uh, yeah, so it drew my parents to move up there when I was 12 years old. And so I spent my teenage years living in that community and then came back south to, to London to university afterwards. But in that uh, six or seven years that I lived up there in the community, it was a really a fantastic experience. And I was certainly exposed to uh, architecture, nature, design, and uh, a lot of um, um, ideas about how we live on the planet, about community, communal living, and sustainability. And in terms of education, were you educated there as well in, as part of the community? No, I, I went to a, a, a regular state school in the local town. At the time, there was a Steiner school, but only for primary age children, although that has since expanded and now I think has some, some secondary education there too. But um, So I went to a normal school, but spent a lot of time in the community and with about a dozen other people my age, we formed a youth group uh, in the community and that enabled us to um, get involved with it more because it's as a... Yeah, obviously it's quite an unusual um, place and it, its primary uh, function and income is as an educational centre. So there's lots of events happening, conferences and workshops and seminars and people coming and going. And so as a, as a youth group, we could tap into that. And if there was an interesting speaker coming to talk, we could invite them to come and come and have a workshop with the young people. Um, so it was a really fantastic place. I, I kind of retrospectively, I see it as a kind of forum i think it, we 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 have our experiences of our identity in school or our identity in our family structure um but to have uh, a kind of wider community to be part of i feel very grateful to have had that opportunity to meet people from different backgrounds different countries different ages and and really especially as a teenager, to, to have a sense of how to explore my own identity within this communal setting was really nice. And what do you think that's given you in terms of an influence on how you now operate professionally as an architect? Um, what kind of influence do you think that gave? Well, I certainly met my first architects in the community. I, I don't have an architect parent or family member, but I got to know architects there. And yeah, and, and had the opportunity to have some very nice kind of mentorship relationships with with local architects there. Um, you know, I remember one giving me my first drawing board that he, he, you know from the nineteen fifties, this really ancient thing that I carried with me on the train down to university. <laughs> uh, it was very nice to 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 feel supported by by those people, and yeah, it gave me a chance to connect at quite a young age with professional people from different backgrounds but certainly the values that underpin the community are values that have very much grown into my life um they they describe it as co-creation with nature which i think is a very nice way to think about what we do how do we co-create um, um and and also uh, personal reflection and meditation which is always useful, perhaps becoming more, more and more popular <laughs> these days. And lastly, their, their third value is uh, described as work as love in action, 
and I think that's also very useful for architecture because you know if you if you can't if you're not putting you know love into what you're doing it's very hard to achieve any kind of good building uh, or a successful outcome or or uh, you know or beauty or any of these 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 kind of things that we strive for so I think the the extent that we can create our our working environment, our working processes, and our client relationships as a as a you know as a as a real labor of love. That's that's when good things happen. And um, so you you moved down to London and and studied architecture. Did you find was there an element again of maybe being slightly ahead of the curve? Did, were you turning up at architecture school and already kind of having? some of the philosophies that, that you, you have as arboreal architects and kind of thinking, you know, what, what's everyone doing? This is, this should be where the focus is. Perhaps. I don't know. I, it probably wasn't so conscious to me at that point. I think I, I, I remember reading, reading Corbusier and saying that the house should be a machine for living in and thinking, no, it should, the house should be a living machine. Uh, that should be the, the the way it should be described. Uh, it should be alive itself, and and kind of sense that. Yeah, I feel like uh, we have had to. I have had to uh, to fight against the kind of machine uh, aesthetic, the machine metaphor in architecture and design for a long time uh, to try to to bring about the the transformation to a a biological metaphor, um, an organism rather than a machine. And and perhaps that is, that is happening. And we, is that something you were thinking straight? I mean, did you read that book right at the beginning of studying the the Corbusier book? Yeah. Was that a reaction you had straight away? Yeah. That's it. Cause, cause for me, interestingly, that I think that's probably the first ever book um, I read about architecture. And I remember reading on the sofa at home it was the reading list before going to university uh, and i just remember it blowing my mind and thinking just it's just the fact of just talking about a house as anything other than just the house i remember thinking yeah wow a machine oh god i never thought about it as something he was kind of linking it to things coming off a production line and why can't houses be like cars wasn't he and um um but i definitely don't at that at that early kind of age, I definitely don't remember already being aware enough to react against it. I was just sort of so blown away. So I think mm. that's quite telling. I think that's mm. quite interesting that you were already thinking in that way and um, and able to respond to something uh, and oppose it, sort of mm. fight against it in a sense. Um, but I, find, I always find it quite interesting when talking about sustainability and particularly when talking with architects. I know that when I studied, it was... 1998 was the first year I was at university and there's this guy who did a great one of the um modules was was all it was environmental studies and it was fascinating it was all the stuff that he was telling us is all the stuff that is still the messaging now and and I think it's quite a common thing to sort of feel particularly in studying architecture 22 years later um have we moved on that much in terms of the knowledge that we have and um not just even the implementing it do you is there do you have that kind of frustration yourself? I think the the knowledge has moved on, and the and the awareness has certainly widened, and the the media attention to green issues has widened. Um, I think the continuing pro- problem in architecture has been that the issues are tending tending to be addressed from an ethical standpoint first, and whilst the ethical standpoint is absolutely vital. It's it so easily becomes 
preachy or didactic or not inspiring to designers or to clients to do things only because it's the right thing to do. And so my frustration is probably that architecture has failed to better inspire people to do green design because it's more beautiful, more interesting, more wonderful, um, and, and, and limited the arguments to being to, to the ethical ones, which are, which are good, but they're not enough to really, to really lead to kind of deeper change. We have to change the way we build and the way we live because, because we want to, because it puts us back into, into connection with the natural world, because it, you know, it sustains us and gives us pleasure. And it's a, it's a thriving choice not just, oh, if I should do this because it's better, but I don't really want to. Well, I think um, Reuse Flat, for me, is a really inspiring project. Um, and I think it is one that sets an amazing example of what can be done and like you're saying, not from an ethical point of view, but actually from a results, let's say a results kind of point of view. Um, but there's there's two really good things about the project for me uh, in summaries. I think the aims uh, were amazing for the project and it's the execution. Um, what you've executed has really kind of achieved a lot, I think. Um, but starting with the aims, you set out with this project and you said that you're targeting zero waste um, in terms of new materials, um, being used in the project in terms of the deconstruction and what would be being removed um, and in terms of yeah and in terms of materials being removed from the site mm. um, quite ambitious aims um, did you achieve them yeah zero waste is a nice aim and uh, well we came very close I would say zero, zero is perhaps perhaps um, um, yeah difficult to achieve uh, but I think that in a way it's the process and really getting to know what the, all these materials are and where they come from and how voluminous they are because so much of it's hidden i think that's generally the case with with waste it's it's out of sight out of mind we throw things away we then then you know once they're away we never have to think about them anymore um and if you know when you walk around london i'm sure you'll see or in any any city you see big skips of full of uh, of waste sitting on the on the side of the road and it, you really when you start to pay attention you see that there's such enormous amounts of material coming out of of buildings um, and then enormous amounts of new material going in going into them so we had to really get to know them uh, much more uh, intimately and closely and and, uh, and in a more measured way uh, than 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 in any other project in order to to get as close to this target of of zero as we could um and we we got we got very close i mean really i think there were only about three bin bags worth of waste that we just couldn't mm -hmm. recycle or reuse everything else i mean about half of what came out of the deconstruction was put back into the project so that that we felt was a very successful uh, volume of reuse and the rest was recycled but and a small amount um, went to landfill but yeah as you also pointed out that it's a it's a multi-stage process so it's not just about 
deconstruction this was an existing building so we took apart parts of it um, and there was waste potentially generated from that phase but also in what we bring to the site um, there's waste associated with the new materials uh, just limiting offcuts and things like that um, and then there's also the future of the building so there's these sort of three phases deconstruction construction and then the future future reuse of the property and we tried to try to design to improve the scenarios of all three and if we talk about some of the features of the space it's an it's a nice big kind of open plan you transform the apartment it's an open plan kitchen and dining space facing onto the garden and one of the really distinctive features of the design is this wood paneling that that um runs around the room now inside that wood paneling you've used cotton insulation to um, improve the thermal performance um and can you maybe talk a little bit about what you know what have you used there because that's thermal insulation is probably one of the worst products that's going into the house you probably have to think very carefully about that but could you maybe describe Mm. what that is and also that interesting little detail that you've got that looks like a kind of cornice Mm -hmm. um, but it looks like it's made out of the insulation yeah yeah it is yeah so yeah the first um aim of the design as you mentioned earlier was that it was about improving the thermal performance of the building as well as the atmosphere of the 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 primary kitchen living dining areas and so a new lining to the walls was the an, an early part of the the design um, strategy and that lining gave us the chance to uh, improve the insulation improve the air tightness and change the appearance of the of the internal wall surfaces so we we needed an insulating material and, and because we were looking at uh, waste as an issue we looked for materials that had a recycle content or were wholly recycled so we used inner therm which is a denim insulation it's 100 percent post-consumer waste jeans it's actually a french product so it's all, any anyone who throws away their jeans into a clothes bank in france is likely to have them fluffed up and turned into this insulation product uh, and it's also very nice. I mean, it's it's denim. It's nice to handle. It's nice to touch. It's a nice blue color. So we also wanted to expose it in some small areas. Um, and we also wanted the lining um, to be clear. You know, that you see that this is not not just a the whole building, but you see that there's a new lining being added. So we had a uh, a visual idea about layering and seeing the edges of things. So, therefore, we exposed a little bit of the, the of the insulation at the cornice, and the cornice is a kind of a nice moment because it's a potential thermal bridge. So, if you only run the insulation up and stop at the ceiling, then there's the chance that the that the that the, the heat escapes around the corner. But if you bend it up a bit over the ceiling, then you prevent that happening. So, it's a really nice moment where you get a te- an improved technical performance. But you also get an improved experience because you get this slightly decorative cornice-like element, and you get a chance to see the insulation itself. So it's it's a yeah, like any good moment of design, it's a kind of win-win-win on multiple. I think it's a great modern interpretation as well on a very traditional um, decorative feature in the house. Um, but mm. you've then over the top of that insulation, you've lined it with wood paneling that's reclaimed from the house. Exactly, yeah. So the, the condition of the flooring in the flat was was fairly low and we wanted to, to, to put in a new timber floor. 
but we didn't want to throw away the old floor, which was um, an engineered board with a maple facing. Um, not great quality, but but amazing to see what you actually can do with it. Even you know, often one of the, the barriers to reusing materials coming out of the de- a deconstruction process is the fear, rightly or wrongly, the fear that uh, it will it won't come up. It'll be it'll be broken. The process of taking it apart will destroy it too much. And that often, I think, is a barrier to, to, to people attempting to reuse things. Um, and even a product that's not particularly high grade, we managed to take it up and, and reprocess it. And yeah, it required a bit of work on site to, to recut it, to cut off the, the tongue and grooved edges and some of the other broken pieces and so on. And, and then to subdivide it into a module that would allow us to get the most out of the existing lengths. But having done all that, we then had a, a, a still attractive uh, timber finish that we could use for wood paneling. And again, we kept the idea of it as, as a kind of layering. So we didn't put it in as on as a, a monotonous surface. We spaced it sometimes and let the insulation show through, which also allowed for a slightly different acoustic performance in certain areas. So we have a bit more soft surfaces in the living room and a bit more hard surfaces in the kitchen. I think I, mean, I really like that feature actually, where you've so you've got the gaps in these timber slats, and you can see the blue of um, these jeans from France. And um, it's the, yeah, acoustics within living spaces. Um, I think it's something that's really overlooked. It's not often mm. considered enough. Um, and like we've designed projects where we've we've done acoustic spaces that have got timber panels and insulation behind, but they're designed for music performance. Mm. But through doing that, I've always kind of thought, well, actually, this really needs to be pushed. I think a bit more in in the home do you think that's something that's was that intentional um from an uh, acoustic point of view to sort of soften the sound slightly yeah certainly intentional um and yeah i think we have had a it has had a a positive impact i think it's also affected by furniture and many other choices but it is a perhaps a an undervalued uh quality uh, in architecture but but yeah but but an important one and it bring, brings to mind for me uh, Peter Zumthor's lovely book, Atmospheres, uh, which I'm often recommending. And I think it's important to, to, yeah, to recognize that that spaces have an atmosphere. And he talks very eloquently about that. And for us, the the goal is to tie that atmosphere both into something that's personal and felt. Uh, but is also something that performs technically mm-hmm. uh, and work works really well at the same time. And then these wood uh, the wood panels on the wall they're then fixed with fasteners as well, um, and you've very specifically not used glue. And um, why is why is that important? Yeah, the builder definitely thanked us for didn't <laughs> use any glue on the project. Um, you'd be surprised how how many times they love gluing things on. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we used exposed fasteners, but in the floor as well. Actually, um, there's not there's no hidden nails; they're all visible screws. Uh, so we have to pay a bit more attention to what screw it is and how it's set out. Um, but it's it's yeah, it's it's durable and it makes the it gives you the opportunity to remove the paneling at any stage. And I suppose it's also perhaps a bigger one of the bigger bigger picture questions is how do we how much do we think about the future of our actions their kind of long-term implications and 
whether it's a, a coffee cup that you buy or or a building that you design, you know, these things last and they have lives beyond our imagination and beyond our involvement with them. So the fact that all of that wood panelling can be unscrewed means that in some future scenario, the client could take it all down and move it to another property. Um, they could sell it. They could um, recycle it. Um, or if they just needed to do some maintenance on some portion of it, they could take off a couple of panels and get access to it. So that demountability has a number of benefits, potential benefits in the short, medium, and really long term. And I think it's really important to have that longer, longer, uh, longer vision about how buildings might be used. And you've done the same with the electric. So all the electric conduits. Uh, all the cables rather than being behind plasterboard and yeah you know, i mean in most projects they're aggressively kind of cut into brickwork and blockwork aren't they with mm. grinders and mm. um but here you've chosen to expose those and they're in metal kind of tubing so presumably you can do the same thing there you can change the electrics without disturbing the house too much yeah yeah exactly um it's yeah, again, it, it's re- recyclable and disassemblable. Uh, and again, it also becomes uh, a design element of the building. If you if the screws are exposed, mm-hmm. you've got to decide. You've got to know where you want them to be. If the if all the conduits exposed, then you have to decide what the routing is going to be and how to make that um, a part of the character of the space. I think the demantability thing is a really interesting one. We've we've had um, Matthew Barnett Howland has been on a previous episode talking about Cork House, which is mm. also very similar has been designed the whole house can be taken apart and all the cork the brass everything can be reused um and i, I know i'm completely guilty of um the very first house that we ever did me and you would we built it ourselves and mm. because we built it ourselves i think that's going to be my excuse but my god we were as we were doing it we were like how is anyone ever going to take this apart because we were so paranoid we were building a stair and we thought well you know, we've never built anything so we were you know there was nails and glue and uh, everywhere so i can sort of fully understand the challenge actually for the for the builder to to actually be following this um and and actually construction uh, something demountable but can we talk actually a bit about the builder because absolutely yeah. fundamental part of the process of doing a project like this is this somebody that has experience of this kind of work um were they fully on board or was it was it a battle it was yeah neither fully on board nor a battle um, most of the time. Good, um, good diplomatic answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do remember the very first time that he I, I sent him the the tender for the project and and he called me up and said, "I just I don't know what this is. Um, <laughs> I've never I've never seen anything like this. Uh, I can't possibly tender for it." Um, it, you know, it sounds great, but I don't know how I'm going to price it or build this thing. And I was like, okay, well, it was just someone who'd been recommended by by a friend, and we had several other builders in mind that we'd worked with before, and we I wasn't particularly um, bothered if 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 he didn't want, you know, wasn't able to to tender for the project, but he was the one that we ended up selecting because somehow, again, through a bit of diplomacy and uh, sitting down together and talking it through, he, he managed to managed to convince him that it was feasible and that we would work together and collaborate and i think that's obviously the the only way is to is to uh, create the conditions where collaboration thrives and yeah and to find the people who are willing willing to do it and Mm -hmm. 
and he had a lot of in the end he had a lot of willingness uh to to work through the issues and there they are they were a number it was not like a normal build for us um because it required a lot of um reprocessing things on site or a lot of unknowns you know anytime we, you're working with a reused material you don't know you know you can look at it you can take up a couple of pieces but you don't really know what the kind of condition it's going to be in until you actually have start working with it mm-hmm. so it's a very different process to just ordering building components from a catalog and having them delivered to site and knowing what they will be and knowing when you'll get them and what condition they'll be in and how they will work is a lot more unknowns to work with and that obviously that required a lot of communication and yeah i mean maybe it did suit his his kind of communication style because he was the kind of contractor who would just want to want to have a chat on the phone every day at lunchtime probably again at 8 p.m you know he just wanted to talk about everything all the time and mm-hmm. well uh, that's one way to to get through the the unknowns and the difficulties is just to keep talking about it. one of the features i really like on the project is the wall that you've done in the garden um, and the reason i like it is it's just one of those it's one of the more attainable aspects let's say of the project mm. um, where you kind of look at it and you think you know the amount of houses that we've done and just think why isn't everybody doing that? You've created, so Gabion Wall, and people that don't know what that is, a kind of cage that's then filled with rubble, um, and it forms a really kind of nice wall feature, the kind of thing that you'd see in bigger kind of landscaping projects. But a great way of just using some of the more difficult waste that would normally just go to landfill, go out and skips, would cost a client money, presumably mm. for all that skip space, um, and being used in the, in the garden. Such a clever and such a simple idea. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the design of that? Because I think there's a few things going on, um, sure. a few different materials in there as well. Yeah. I mean, actually, we realized um, during the project that this wasn't a particularly novel thing to do, as is often often the case. Um, things have been done before in the past. We've just forgotten about them. But in the Victorian and pre-Victorian era, certainly in London and in other places it was quite normal that if you demolished some part of a building that you just buried it in the ground you kept it on the site and whilst we didn't bury any of our waste in the ground on the site we we realized that we we needed a a wall between the 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 existing property and the and the neighbor and we realized that we could use a lot of the the masonry that came out of the of the brick walls in in a gabion and i think yeah of, of the single kind of design points that we made this is certainly the the most successful on kind of all levels because it's really easily justifiable it's it you know it saved about three or four skips worth of masonry leaving leaving the site which would have been costly it saved the builder the time of kind of loading the skips um and it just it meant we didn't we, obviously it saved buying materials for a new wall in between the the properties so yeah we just we just took a, a regular galvanized steel gabion cages which are available um all over the place very cheap on a simple strip foundation and then just filled up the the gabion cages with the broken bricks as they came out of the building and we did try to not to break them and where we managed to keep some whole ones we used those for paving but um a lot of uh, cementitious mortar meant that we couldn't keep keep a lot of them whole but the broken ones we put into the cages and and they tell a kind of story actually because although the outside of this victorian schoolhouse is all red brick 
we discovered in the from the internal walls and and also in the in the thickness of the walls themselves uh, yellow bricks and some gray bricks uh, all, all the, yeah, a number of different colors so we we separated those out and laid them in a kind of geological strata into the gabion cages mm -hmm. so you can kind of see in a way the the, the story of the de deconstruction of the building um relayed down as a kind of sediment in, into the wall so there's a yeah it, there's a sort of poetic element of it a very functional practical element and even a cost-effective one and in the uk we love a good debate uh, about what to do with the fence and next door neighbors mm -hmm. who should pay for what was was the neighbor on the other side of this gabion wall receptive to the idea very receptive, yeah. I mean, the other great thing about gabions is that they have lots of little gaps and cracks and holes in them, which is great for growing plants up or planting little wall plants into. Uh, we also put a bit of timber into the top layers, uh, which we drilled out, and, and that forms a nice insect habitat and uh, um, it does work. I've been back to the site and seen the, the yeah. holes fill, filled with um, filled with um, bees myself. Um, and luckily, the yeah, the owner on the other side also enjoyed uh, not just the appearance of the gabion wall, but the idea that this would be a, a, a wildlife habitat and a plant plantable element of their garden. And they and both both neighbours have um, vigorously grown plants up and around the wall, and it's looking fantastic. About yeah, two years later now. So, if somebody was planning a project on their house and they're inspired, so they've seen seen this project, or the, or, the, or they're listening. Um, and they're really inspired to want to do something similar on their house. What's the number one piece of advice that you'd give them? Uh, yeah. Hmm. It's, I think it, I have to say it would be choose the right architect um, yeah. because it's, it does come down to this, you know, the, in, the interpersonal level of how do you work with someone for a long, a long period of time. Um, and, yeah, so finding someone that shares your values and uh, you really enjoy collaborating with—that's that's really the way to 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 succeed with whatever your aims might be. And what did you learn from the process of doing reuse flat? Yeah, we learned. I mean, we learned a lot. We learned and we learned very much on 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 all of our projects because. We, yeah, although we had had this idea and, and done it uh, before on a smaller scale, we really had to um, uh, go a lot further than we had in the past. And so we learned a lot about uh, auditing materials, which is something we hadn't really done before on, on, on a kind of in a thorough way. So about going to site and um, luckily it's close to our office. So we go regularly and we photograph and measure and document all the materials that came out of the deconstruction. So in a way we got, we got a lot more kind of familiar with the, with the stuff of buildings than we, than we were before. And yeah, we also, we also were thinking about uh, the embodied carbon of materials. So at the same time as, being being concerned about the waste we were also thinking what kind of carbon impacts do these materials have and also the materials coming to site so auditing materials gives you this extra layer of information that you really know what's going in and what's coming out and that enables you to make some different decisions about what are their impacts in terms of waste and what are their impacts in terms of carbon uh, i'm asking my guests um all my guests the same three questions uh, and the first one 
um, starts with you and it's, it's about your home. Uh, I'm interested to know what's the one thing that really annoys you in your home? Hmm. Um, well, I live in a, a, a passive house designed flat that was uh, um, built about six years ago and it's quite close to the train lines. So it has a kind of double problem. It obviously has the noise of the trains when the windows are open, but also because it's 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 very thermally efficient. It's amazing in winter. We don't use any heating whatsoever, but it does struggle with overheating in summer, which is perhaps a an emergent design issue. And I think is becoming architects becoming more aware of, and I, I believe it's going into building regulations uh, in the near future. But how to manage managing acoustics and uh, and not overheating is is a, is an issue for us. Um, but we're 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 working on it. We're we're testing out different different options, and I think that we're 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 probably going to add some automated window opening devices so that we can open all the windows in the middle of the night uh, when there's no trains and get lots of ventilation. And yeah, maybe that's something. Yeah, we need our houses to to be able to to kind of manage these things in a, in slightly smarter ways. I'm not necessarily a big fan of, of highly automated homes. I think they mm-hmm. they go wrong more than they go right. But there's one or two moments where you you need a little bit of intelligence to to make your buildings work. I fully agree. I, I think that sometimes there's quite a lot of focus on technology to achieve environmental and sustainable aims, and actually there's. I mean, exactly as your company name and relating to the tree and the, and the designs in nature, that there's so many sort of natural, simple things that can be done first before mm. taking that route. Um, yeah, I mean, we, I think our, our culture likes the idea that there's a technological fix to things. And that's, a, that's kind of good for business, good for, good for capital, but um, isn't always the, the smartest solution. But there's also a lovely book that I'm reading at the moment that came out recently, the, a book called Low Tech. Uh, which is about uh, smart solutions that uh, that have a low-tech and traditional origins. And if you could describe one home that you've lived in or perhaps that you've visited um, that has made you feel happy, um, could you tell me what the house is and, and why why it made you feel happy? So, yeah, before, in between, we, I mean, we talked a bit about my my background and so I was growing up in Scotland and studying in university in London but but after that I lived in the States for seven years and in in Los Angeles for for six and I had the pleasure of visiting a number of the um, contemporary modern modern and case study houses in LA and John Lautner uh, became a favorite architect of mine at that time and there's several of his houses that are incredible um, Silvertop is one that comes to mind, which is perched on this ridge uh, in Silver Lake overlooking the reservoir. And it's, yeah, it's a really a joyful, joyful building. Um, exuberant, uh, curvaceous, uh, bold, uh, idiosyncratic, uh, and really, really an inspiring space. And so if you could choose any designer to design you a home, who would you choose? Well, attempting to go with Lautner, uh, he's a bit of a, a hero hero of mine. Um, we've got a couple of old VHS videos of him talking about his work, which I like to to look at periodically. And I think I think he would he would definitely be one. Otherwise, 
maybe Carlos Scarpa is another another, oh, good choice. another hero. Yeah. Um, just the, I mean, yeah, what a genius looking at his his drawings. Uh, is it really true that he used to draw with both hands? Did you hear that one? I haven't heard that one, no. I remember hearing, uh, that's what I always heard about that one of the, don't know if it's true, if that's a, a little mythical story about Scarpa. That he <laughs> did the, I, I picture him you know, drawing away with both hands and uh, creating these amazingly composed pieces of architecture. And also perhaps um, if I could be even more specific, maybe I could get him to, uh, well, not only come back from the dead, but um, to to do a, a retrofit type project where we mm-hmm. it was not just a new build design wholly from his mind because so many of his great works are are retrofits and uh, uh, additions and alterations to existing buildings and I think he he more than more than anyone managed to capture the 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 pleasure of two different architectural languages uh, talking to each other such as in the Castelvecchio project of course. Tom, um, it's been great talking to you today. Uh, thanks for joining me for this session. Yeah, really a pleasure. Really nice to, to talk about these things. And I look forward to, to, uh, to listening to your other podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about reuse flat and about arboreal architecture, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com where you will find links to their work. You can also follow the podcast Instagram to see work of all my guests and sneak previews of upcoming guests. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a review on iTunes or on whichever platform you are listening, as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode. Thank you again for listening. Thank you.